Well, guys, today uh, we are going to, we're going to discuss a fun topic. Uh, we're going to talk about what's the best rep range. And I'm excited for this, Scott, because I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, I could talk with you about training every day. So this is day one of seven of, for the week. Uh, <laughs> let's let's see what we've we, what, where we can go okay. with this. We'll start. Can I predict something? First of all. I know what you're going to predict. I can predict your prediction, but yes. But no, predict what am I going to predict? You're going to predict that I'm going to say it basically depends, and I'm going to use <laughs> individual variability. <laughs> oh man, I'm turning really lottery? red. I'm turning really red. Valley <laughs> lottery. Today, I think I did. That's not your face. That's the the light that I won, like at, the, yeah. at Vegas, you know. And wow, like you and the jackpot on the. On the one arm bandit. So that says that uh, not only have I listened to you talk about training a lot, uh, you've listened to me listen to you talk about training a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it means that last time when I saw you in person, I put my hand on your shoulder. I was doing a Vulcan mind meld and actually <laughs> like putting information in. You didn't know that. Huh. It co- now it's coming to the it's surface. It's making it's sense. It's making sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. right. So where where do we start with this one? Okay. So uh, sometimes you ask. Sometimes when people ask questions and like you ask, what's the best? There's a presumption behind that. There's kind of a if we're going to kind of develop an idea, the, the the assumption would be the given would be we're looking at it like as you would for like maybe a mathematical proof that there is a best. That that presumes that you know that there's some absolute you know something that's going to be you know the best for everyone in some way shape or form and obviously we sort of know as we just said that's not really the case. So what we can do is sort of look at reasons why one might be better than another. Okay. So there's this very cool. It's a super cool topic because you know the notion has been around for forever that higher ups are better for type one fibers or, or we know muscles that tend to be type one fiber dominant. Um, so this would be like calves for instance, or legs in general, um, or someone who has like a whole lot of endurance oriented fibers that they sense that would be the, the case. And that, that's, that's a common notion. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. That's the way I've sort of perceived some people view this. Is that, I would, that- I would say so. I think another, Another thought that I've heard through the years is that higher reps will get you cut versus lower reps will build like a bulky, bulky muscle. Yeah. I mean, that's like people would switch pre-contest and higher reps. Yes. And you're not expending a ton more energy. I mean, if you like triple your volume or something like that, yes, but not at all the way in my mind to, um, to try to hold on to muscle mass and produce the energy de- deficit. In fact, uh, there is actually an analysis. There was a meta-analysis that, that Brad Schoenfeld was part of looking at um, shortening the rest intervals and the impact that has on muscle size. And you end up handicapping yourself because you can't handle the same loads. And right. You're going to miss out on the loading potential that's important. So this is where that you know phrase, you know, I'm going to say, one of the Dante would say, the one that I would say, you know, dance with the one who brung you. Um, you know, if you're if you literally started training with much more volume and dropped your loads down pre-contest to where now you're, you know, if you went back and tested your strength in like that eight to twelve rep range and you've lost like 20, 30 percent of the strength you had there, 
chances are, you know, aside from the fact that maybe you've just decimated yourself in a recent workout, you've lost some muscle mass. Yeah. So, but if you can hold on to that, that strength and that, you know, sort of the sweet spot, so to speak, um, rep wise, you start off 315 pounds for 10 reps at the beginning of your prep and you end up, you know, 315 pounds for eight reps at the end of your prep, you've held your muscle. Yeah. But if you, if you forego that, this is of course a side topic and you start training light to try to burn fat during your workouts, not at all where I would go. Hmm. Not one bit. There's really, um, you can look at, look at that from various, various perspectives, but the highest you're going to go like percentage VO2 max, even like if you're doing like circuit training, it's like 60% of a VO2 max. Okay. So you can have a higher rate of energy expenditures just doing cardio. Hmm. So as far as like energy expenditure over time, like you can go in the gym and train for an hour with weights. Yeah. That would be your weight work, weight workout. That's it. You're not even going to have as much energy expenditure doing that with weights as you would if you just did cardio. Huh. So, you know, which of those would you rather train with the heavy weights, maintain the loads, maintain the strength, keep that stimulus in place for holding on the muscle mass, and then expend your energy, even if you wanted to do cardio, which wouldn't be my first choice, and for most people, unless they know that works really well for them, them, um, you get better energy expenditure in terms of creating that caloric deficit, kind of comes down to the thermodynamics, by just doing cardio. That makes sense. In many cases, if you know, sixty percent is easy to maintain doing cardio. Okay. And you don't, and then you can hold on to your your heavy weight training and your efforts by training heavy and effort with high effort in the gym. So that's that's aside from what we're talking about, I think. But it's it's an important feature of like where do you want to have your rep ranges as far as muscle growth? Yeah. What are we What are we using training for? And I think you're telling us that you know, use training for muscle growth. I think, I think there is that thing where people think like, well, I'm going to try to burn more fat with this workout too. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that study that comes from a a study that Mike Stone did way back when the circuit training study and haven't seen any follow-ups to that, but what you can't, the hand actually, there's a couple studies. Shoinke was one of them. And I forget, um, it's Italian group did another one with the rest pause training. And you can do like this study I've talked about is a 20, 28 minute workout and they did uh, power cleans or ha- kind of a, ha- a hang clean, uh, squats and deadlifts, four sets each, like an eight to 12 rep range. I believe it's pretty close to this with two minutes rest in between. So they bang through a workout like that, basically 12 total sets to failure, like around the 10 rep max range so they adjusted the load and they had a an epoch excess post-exercise oxygen consumption over 800 calories huh yeah yeah okay that was massive yeah 28 minute workout 800 calories is about what you get if you were kicking ass doing cardio hmm. and that's because of the inroads into recovery this was the first time they did this this was like they went in they did it it was a novel workout for these individuals so some of that epoch could have been because they, they pardon my French, they screwed them up so bad. They fucked them, over, fucked them so bad with the work. Can you imagine? Like just four sets of squats to true failure. Yeah, no. There's enute to wreck you. With but a two-minute two break and all of that, yes. that would be a lot. Brutal. But you can create a tremendous epoch training that way. If you look at the majority of the studies, like the circuit training studies, yeah. we're going to make that comparison. You don't see an epoch that's produced like a the caloric expenditure after the workout that's 
anything more than like 20, 30 calories hmm. for the most part. You're not getting above like 50 calories, hardly any of those studies. But when you do heavy lo- loading training like that with big, big movements, the ones that people a lot of times want to sort of eschew when they mm-hmm. get, you know, closer to uh, getting on stage, they want to avoid those hard ones. And sometimes you have to. You don't want to, you know, destroy yourself 10 days out trying to do something stupid, you know, where your injury potential is high. But that heavy, hard training, the stuff that got you there, the stuff that you, you danced with, you know, early on in your prep and in your off season are the things that, that actually will create, at least from what we know from the EPOC, energy expenditure after the workout. So training that way hard and heavy as best you can in a way, and that's not many sets. Like you wouldn't probably train that way. That's not a normal split to do bench and squat. You know, right. for a bodybuilder at least in the same workout with cleans like that but that sort of heavy compound type movement um, is the type of thing that's going to hold on to muscle mass and that's an empirical finding that I've found over the years you keep the loads with those reps the same and hold on to that even if you drop your volume down the muscle's going to stay you keep training that way you may not burn many calories during your workout you won't necessarily because you can't get above like that 60% probably just kind of how it works out but you can get a massive epoch because of, of the of what you've done in terms of your recovery, and that some of that's replenishing glycogen, some of it's probably muscle damage, yeah. some of it's the um, the sympathetic effect. Okay, you, know, you get a, a huge like epinephrine and norepinephrine release from how hard that training is. That's probably something that elevates with metabolic rate. What contributes to epoch is is somewhat nebulous and unknown entirely. But as far as energy expenditure. You know, and getting that from a workout, actually, overall, it seems like training hard and heavy in a, in a more abbreviated fashion is better than trying to do higher reps, circuit training types of things, hmm. interestingly enough, because the epoch can be really, really huge. Okay, so, so, so I'm thinking some of the people that are going to see the thumbnail to this, and it's going to have mm-hmm. something to do with, like, what is the best rep range? Right. Um they're probably tuning in to say, hey, Scott, I'm trying to grow as much muscle as I possibly can. Uh, should I be training with six reps? Should I be training right. with eight reps? How can we figure out what would be what would be best as we as you know, as, as somebody's getting into the gym and they're thinking, OK, I'm going to train this muscle group today and I want to grow as much muscle as you as I can. How, how would we go about figuring out where that best rep range would be? trial and error and um, which is something that may take years to figure out okay and when in doubt train as hard as humanly possible (laughs) using progressive overload as your guide I'm thinking real big picture now before we dive into some of the details here this there's really no way around it everyone's got a descent to which your strength and muscle size changes in unison in parallel is going to vary. Some people are going to get really strong and not get the size gains. Nah. Some people get great size gains and won't have to get that strong to do it. Yeah. But to some degree, if you can make yourself, and I've said this on many podcasts in various contexts, if you can make yourself into a badass performer using re- relevant rep ranges in the gym, it's going to show up in your physique. What's a and relative means- rep range? Not doubles or or triples or singles necessarily. Those okay. can have they have their role, like literally that six to twelve or six to fifteen rep range. 
okay. where we know we get good muscle growth for sure. Okay. And it can even be higher. We can get into that. But hmm. you take yourself from a 225 pound lifter in the te- at a 10 rep max to failure and over the course of five or six years, turn that to a four or five pound lift with just as many reps. It's going to show up in your physique. Hmm. Now, you may end up doing sets of six, four or five. Jordan Peters is obviously a great example of someone who likes to go down and touch the heavy weights. Yeah. You know, that has a psychological effect. That's a neurological effect that I think carries over to getting stronger overall. Um, there's also something to say for training at higher rep ranges. Widowmakers, mm. calling upon, you know, Dante's ideas. Challenge sets, calling upon John Meadows. Those are the things that will develop sort of calling upon my thought fortitude and so to speak and an ability to train even harder that will contribute to what happens during the rest of your sets too so you know both ends beyond higher loads lesser reps lesser loads higher reps those will contribute to performance adaptations indirectly um, in that rep range but you get stronger in that rep range, the rep range that produces muscle growth that we know, like it's pretty much a standard that sort of, you know, Goldilocks zone, so to speak. Yeah. Not too hot, not too cold, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's that's what's that's going to produce muscle growth as long as you're eating enough to support the growth and doing all the basic things that come with, you know, bodybuilding recovery, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So. So then the question becomes, you know, how do I produce um, growth in a stagnant muscle or what have you? Hmm. You know, how do I, what rep range is going to be best? Now, like, so here's, here's the question. So if you took some of this hypothetical question, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone address it this way, but this is sort of what's being asked in this topic is, would I grow better over five years if I trained in the six to eight rep range or if I trained in the 15 to 20 rep range? Let's yeah. Say, which is going to produce the most growth. So then you would look, you look at um, one way of knowing would be look at the research. What do we see there in terms of producing muscle growth, which is mostly going to be in newbie trainers, reasons why you, you pick inexperienced people because you get a nice effect size there. Do you get better growth if you're looking at lower loads higher reps or the, the, the contrary. And as far as whole muscle, whole muscle size goes, it's just about the same. You can do 80% of one rep max, like an eight to 10 rep max um, set and compare that with 30 or 50, you know, 20 to 30 reps. Whole muscle growth is about the same. Hmm. The main thing that you need to have there in, in, the, in, in most, mostly is that, especially with those lighter loads, you're taking those sets to failure. When they there's a few studies and few approaches they take where it's like you know okay so let's try to match like the workload let's do the heavy training like match the workload on the lighter sets and don't take those to failure for instance one way to look at it you don't get the growth hmm. and the reason for that in part is well probably because they're not as effortful those sets aren't as tough you're stopping we can look at it from an effective reps range if you're stopping five reps shy of failure because you're trying to get those sets to match the workload that you did with the higher, heavier loads. Well, those just, those sets aren't as hard, you know, so you're not going to get the stimulus from those. And even deeper, you can look at that physiologically. You're not going to tap into those high threshold motor units. When you start off a set, you're using a given number of the motor units, a given number of the fibers that are available. And then as the set 
proceeds, you start adding motor units and you start increasing firing rate. That's probably a differential strategy depending on the exercise, depending on the muscle, depending on the person. But when you get to the end of a set or you're getting towards the end of a set, only when you're getting to those that zero reps in reserve or to a true muscular, momentary muscular failure point, are you activating that muscle using all the motor units that are available at the highest firing rate that you can muster at that time. Hmm. So you're not getting an activation of all those motor units, all those fibers, um, until you get, you know, within probably on, on a 20 or 30 rep range, you know, somewhere within three or four reps of failure. And those are brutal. Those aren't fun. In the higher, heavier load stuff, you could do like take a 10 rep max set and leave two reps in the tank. You're in and out of that set. You know, it's maybe it's 25 seconds as opposed to a minute. Mm-hmm. And you're not spending as much time. Those last two reps are tough, but you got those two reps and you're done. Yeah. You're getting a lot of loading. You're getting an activation of many things at, at a high firing rate, and you're in and you're out. It's still hard. Don't get me wrong, but it's a different scenario for many people. So getting back to the, the question then, um, if you take – if you were a, a whole muscle level, if you take the heavy loading versus the lighter loading, you're probably going to end up with, on average, on average, <laughs> this is the thing, the same kinds of gains over the long haul. But there's that individuality difference. So so why would one person do better with heavy loading and someone else with lighter loading? So first thing I can think of is and you look like you might have a question. Let me stop no, no, right no. there before I No 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 I I'm, I, I was okay. just I was good. the gears were turning. Okay. Uh, good, and good. and I want to hear what you have to say. So some of it's gonna be just kind of what I insinuated how do they like to train and how much do they enjoy like really pushing at the end of those sets? Mm-hmm. Some people are like, you know what? They're thinking about doing a Widowmaker for three days beforehand. It's the last thing they ever want to do. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, and some people are like, I can't wait to get in there and just crush this Widowmaker or, or those challenge sets or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So there's some, some of it's going to be the effort levels that someone can put forth on a regular basis, basis progressively over the months and years to make the progress. Um, so there can be that, um, some of it can be some just unknown genetic variables. So there's a, um, uh, a meta-analysis that, that Gurdjick has done. I think I'm pronouncing G R G I C has done looking at this and you don't see any advantage, for instance, in what you might expect the way we sort of phrased at the beginning in terms of heavy loading versus lighter loading in terms of increasing size of the type ones or the type twos. Hmm. So it's not like the heavy loading does better with the type twos versus the light loading, which is typically what you might see. If you look at that on average across all the studies, there's not some systematic difference, but you see that in some studies, you certainly do. And you don't see it in others. And, uh, there are reasons why you might expect to see that, but a lot of it is probably going to be that this is just one of those things that is highly individualistic because the stress, and this is the way I see it, the stress of training, it's an unnatural act, as I say over and over and over again. So there's going to be a manifold different sort of adaptations to that, the training stimulus. It's going to produce 
increases in enzymes to help muscle endurance, maybe more so in some people than others. Hmm. The stress is picking up the weight repeatedly for as many reps as possible. Mm-hmm. One thing that can make you better at that is having more of the enzymes of en- energy metabolism. Hmm. So some people are just going to be because you know of their genetics and who their various things you can maybe trace back into their genetic lineage. They're going to have a really robust adaptation enzymatically to the stress that you that you undergo in the gym. Yeah, and interesting. So th- they're going to so that's how they're going to improve performance, and they're not going to get great muscle growth. Mm. So it's sort of like you, if, it, if a, a car or a, ve- a vehicle was something that could uh, could adapt to the stress of driving um, long distances at high 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 speeds, if the if the adi- if it could sort of like a like a transformer type of thing, one way the transformer could adapt itself is becoming more fuel efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of like adjusting its en- enzymatic capabilities, more mitochondria. Or increasing the size of its tank, so more enzymes to produce ATP at higher rates. Hmm. So you could see that glyco- in terms of glycolytic enzymes or mitochondrial oxidative enzymes. Um, or another adaptation could be: Ah, what if we just keep the same RPMs, but we have bigger tires? So each revolution hmm. of the of the of the tire gives us further distance. Like that's how Usain Usain Bolt can run so fast. He doesn't have the step turnover that's that much more impressive hmm. from all the other 100-meter dash runners. He's just – part of it is he's just a taller guy. Hmm. He gets more distance per stride yeah. than his competitors do. So he runs faster in absolute sense. So for some people, as their muscles being the, you know, the analogous to the transformer vehicles, they get bigger muscle, muscle fibers. Lucky. So they can produce more force. Or any load is relative. Yeah, exactly. Lucky. It's some degree. It's sort of lucky, or it's you know, it's the it's the luck of their genetic lineage. So it's the luck of the parents that they chose when they you know, came into this world, so to speak. And their adaptation is to get bigger fibers, which makes any load easier. So they get a performance yeah. adaptation that way. They get more reps because the loads are relatively lighter. So you get more reps with a relatively lighter load, hmm. and yeah. everything in between. So. Hmm. Some people are going to adapt with more size. Some people are going to have more enzymatic adaptations. Um, you see this when you look just at training studies in general. So, like, there's mm. lots of acute training studies, and they look at the relative changes in the type ones versus the type twos. A lot of the early studies, you see, like, the type twos grow better than the type ones. They see, they have more growth potential, mm. and you see that noted. And that's a really common, like, well substantiated phenomenon. But then if you look, sometimes there, and there's different studies that are out there, but there are some studies that show, um, and this is used to support the notion of hyperplasia, that advanced bodybuilders don't have necessarily bigger fibers than untrained sedentary people. They have lots of type 1 fibers that are of an average size, giving them a much larger muscle. So one adaptation beyond just increasing fiber size per se or or changing the enzymatic character of the fiber so making it more economical so to speak or having more enzymes in there to give it sort of a bigger engine in terms of speed not just a bigger tires or a bigger vehicle is to give it more to have those fibers split off and get a bigger muscle that's more endurance oriented the same at the same time 
Hmm. So you see, you go and imagine you go in, you're like, we have these, we have these bodybuilders who have biceps that are twice the size of our sedentary controls. They're huge. And you pull out a muscle, pull out the muscle biopsy and you analyze it. And you're like, what the hell? Their fibers are the same size as the untrained, you know, wimpies huh. are, you know, our untrained people who are supposed to be our normal controls. What's going on? Their, their muscles are twice as big. Something over the long term in the way, probably from the way these bodybuilders train, these studies were, a lot of them were done back in the day when everyone was training like Arnold using bro splits or pro splits. Yeah. And the adaptation that they saw was one of having lots of type one fibers hmm. of average size. So but probably, more. but more of them, giving hmm. them a larger muscle. And that's Interesting. what you see actually, if you look at some of the animal, like Jose Antonio's study that, you know, is, is more people are starting to recognize now, maybe because I've talked about it a few times. And I've talked about here on the show, but it's, it bears repeating. It was a uh, a progressive stretch overload study in quail. Okay, so it's yeah, the, yeah. Hang, the weight, yeah. So they he hung the weight and then gave him like a day off, you know, knowing the recovery is important, and then added weight progressively. And I can't remember the exact protocol, but they did this over a course of about a month. And along the path, they sacrificed cohorts of those of those quail, so they could see like what's happening progressively week by week over these like four this four weeks of growth and they had like over 200 percent increase in, in in muscle weight wow wet weight of the anterior latissimus dorsi the muscle that was being stressed and what they saw initially was fiber growth the fibers started getting bigger mm-hmm. and they also saw the fibers transitioning from that type 2 which is a less less used more of like that's your uh, reserve type fiber. You don't typically use your, your type twos during a normal day-to-day um, activities. Those started banishing, which is what you see when people start training. The type two percentage um, will shift, at least in humans, um, from a two, uh, two X to two A. Those two X's sort of vanish because they start getting used and they transform the two A's. And this study was, was much more um, impressive in terms of the, the stimulus those twos start vanishing. Hmm. So the fibers get bigger over the first week, two weeks, the fibers get bigger. And then you start losing those type twos because they're being used all the time. And then you start seeing the fibers getting smaller while hmm. the whole muscle is getting bigger. As wow. if the fibers are splitting, you're getting hyperplasia, you're getting more fibers, and you're ending up with a bigger muscle made up of smaller fibers hmm. that are are better equipped for handling a chronic, continuous stretch overload in this case okay which is more akin to how a bodybuilder who trains with a higher volume but still hard might might end up training you see that in some of these studies with early bodybuilders but you don't see that in all the studies Hmm. so that's sort of another so there's different paths to adaptation over the long run what you know if we could get a biopsy maybe he'll he'll you know allow this at some point in time of tom platz's legs yeah can't do it you know back when he was at his prime but his legs are still pretty damn impressive there's something different about him now i'm still i'm sure he's changed some things permanently in those legs you know right absolutely there's epigenetic changes over the course of decades of training the way he has yeah yeah you know like what are his what does his fiber type look like i i would really wonder that that'd be interesting it would be very interesting to know, you know. So um, I think the thing that's that's interesting because because this stimulus of weight training is one that really we're hacking the system. It's not one that was was 
um, selected for in an evolutionary sense. It wasn't as if, you know, as much as we like to sort of imagine this when we're watching the motivation videos that only the strongsters survive and like only the toughest who can make it through the hardest workouts are the ones that are going to rise to the top and win the shows, what have you. There was no selective pressure in the course of human, human evolution to survive weight training workouts. You know, <laughs> Fred and Barney weren't lifting, you know, rocks and lowering them repeatedly, you yeah. know. Um, so there's nothing to select for a hypertrophic adaptation specifically to the stimulus that we produce, we're trying to craft muscle growth from that stimulus. And some people get it from probably certain kinds of the stimulus and others don't. Hmm. So when you look back now at the science, like that meta-analysis I mentioned, heavy load versus light load doesn't consistently produce a fiber type specific increase in muscle fiber size. You don't see that you know, um, universally across studies or across individuals but you see it in some studies and you see it in some individuals. So hmm. some people might do better with higher rep ranges. Hmm. Some people might do better with lower rep ranges. And one thing we do tend to see though, when you look at the low load versus high load is that training with, um, to failure is important. And there's something going on there and we can, so we can zero in on that just for a sec. What you do see, um, if you look at the blood flow restriction studies, Mm -hmm. is a fiber type specific increase or a specific increase in the type 1 fibers. So blood flow restriction does seem to do a really nice job because it's creating this metabolic stress effect, um, which is changing activation pattern of increasing the type 1s. So that's even another level of hacking into the molecular biology of producing adaptation. Because now we've got, not only is it, you know, an unnatural act to lift things up and put them down repeatedly, you know, where are you going with that weight? Why are you doing that back and forth, back and forth? Now we've strapped off the blood flow hmm. in a way that produces fatigue. So the nervous system is like, what in the fuck is going on? Well, now we've got to really change things because we've got a whole nother fatigue uh, challenge at work. And we really have to like focus, focus, you know, on trying to maintain this load. That does, in that extreme circumstance, tend to uh, produce greater fiber size increases in those type one endurance-oriented fibers. Hmm. Those are the ones that are going to be able to contribute um, the best to maintaining performance, continuing the set in that stressful, metabolically stressful situation. Hmm. And there's a, a, one particular study where they looked at the acute molecular um, uh, stresses that were brought on by doing things like a 74% one rep max load hmm. for several sets. And they compared that with a lighter load, like the 40 or 50%. One of the lighter load conditions was do the reps and just um, you know, take your time doing them with pauses in between like many people like to do. So imagine you're doing a 20 rep set, you know, the average person, imagine your average training in the gym, anyone's personal trainer is coach people. Most people don't just do the reps continuously the way I suggest in fortitude training, they stop yeah. because it hurts and they know they can get more reps mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a, it's a psychological um, fatigue reduction strategy that gets employed. Like you want to, you know, you, if you just kept on going, you're going to like, you're going to fall right into that, that pit of fatigue and the set's going to end. 
Yeah, I don't think people one. recognize that either. It's a subconscious thing, I think. It's it's conscious and subconscious. Yeah. Like, yeah right. Um, both. So, and so they tested the heavier loading condition. They tested the lighter loading condition, and then they had a third condition with that same lighter load, but they but they didn't allow them to rest between reps, basically continuous. And when you looked at the heavier loading versus the lighter loading, when you when you uh, didn't allow the rest, so continuous reps, the way I set it out in fortitude training for some various reasons, but this is interesting that you see this, the molecular effects were different. So one of the things that you got more so with the heavier loading was an activation of mTOR, which is turning on protein synthesis. Hmm. One of the things you got more so with the lighter load, continuous reps, which is more metabolic stress, is an inhibition of the mRNA signal for myostatin. Hmm. So you reduce myostatin more so. Hmm. So there's some differential molecular effects brought on from a heavy training with big weights versus lighter training that's more metabolic stress oriented. Hmm. So there's something going on differentially there between those two types of things. So it makes sense then if you're someone who is unsure, um, sort of, I'm sort of giving away the, the, uh, the punchline here, is that you want to train with both heavier reps to try to turn on that pathway of muscle growth as well as train with the lighter reps in a way that evokes more metabolic stress, which is what training to failure does, of course, because those are harder, more metabolic stress, and maybe even more with, with continuous reps to a certain degree. Because of the metabolic stress that's evoked there, and I'll one thing you'll see, and people can even pay attention in their own training. Is let's say you do, and this is dependent on the person, and there's reasons we can. This is a whole other change we can get into, but if you do a, a high rep set, and you allow yourself to take breaks, and you stre- like literally you do it sort of a widowmaker style. It takes a lot of mental focus to truly take that set to where you end the set because of muscle fatigue. Hmm. Yeah. So let's say you do 12 reps and you do three or four more and then you do take a little break, you do double, two, two reps, and then you do singles and you just stretch that set out till finally that last rep is like, ah, maybe you truly go to failure and it just stops mm-hmm. and then it goes nowhere. That's the sign of you've got a, a, a physiological fatigue in the muscle itself and that the, the nervous system, although it's probably still limiting, who knows, you know, but you've really sort of brought the locus of fatigue down to the muscle. Whereas many people, if they do that, those, those discontinuous reps like that, eventually they're just, they're suffering so much psychologically being in that place of prolonging the set mm-hmm. that you'll see, you'll see either Either, a couple things. One, they just stop, and you know they had some reps left. You can just see it. And this is a well-documented phenomenon by trainers and also in the research. Or I see this sometimes, too. There's kind of a sandbagging that goes on where you can almost see that they sort of know or they sort of fake a failure rep. <laughs> I, I can imagine it. I can imagine yeah, it. Yeah, it's like they have a rep. The rep goes up. Rep goes up. Rep goes up. Rep goes up, uh, and they're done. It's like, where was yeah. the one? Like the reps, he was the same, and all of a sudden, like, I don't know. The same, the next rep is just super slow. It's like, 
you know you're supposed to look it's supposed to slow down so you sort of do a fake rep mm. so the point i'm getting at there is that um sometimes doing a widowmaker style set can mean that you end the set but still because of psychological hmm. versus muscular fatigue and if you can stick yourself into the set and continuously do those reps you know which is going to make for a shorter set it might make might mean like 10 15 sets of really digging in psychologically yeah. seconds not sets seconds of digging in until you like literally grind the muscle to a halt and then you're done as opposed to 45 seconds of doing widowmaker stuff you could maybe produce a better metabolically stress based stimulus with those continuous reps hmm. so that might actually be better for muscle growth i'm totally like armchair you know wild ass guessing this sure but the thing that i think is important this is why i did this in fortitude training is doing those reps continuously like that it standardizes the um the set execution mm -hmm. for logbook tracking because you don't allow yourself those breaks you can get more reps by just taking more breaks mm -hmm. and this that, that way you haven't really improved physiologically or in terms of muscle size what have you it's just you just had a different strategy to get more reps yeah. And you also don't have all those like near failure reps that just rip your nervous system apart. You keep sure. doing lots of lots of sets that way where you're like coming right up to a budding up on failure and stopping. That'll destroy your nervous system. And that, I think, is one of the things that can push people to overreaching hmm. in a non-functional way pretty, pretty rapidly. I could see so, that. So anyway, so we've got those, you know, different metabolic stimuli that are molecular um, mechanisms that are sent into motion with the heavier training versus the lighter training. But when you look at the, the research, you, sometimes you get a different effect on the fiber types, sometimes you don't. Hmm. So, so what we what we think, what, the idea though is that you'd want to probably do both, higher reps and lower reps with lighter loads and heavier loads. Hmm. training hard in order to make sure that you're you're covering all bases in terms of reducing myostatin um, and you know sending the molecular signals out there are going to produce muscle growth so that's one reason why that's important another another thing which I really have seen for sure myself and with people who've done fortitude training the way I set it up is that you've got the different set types that are heavier more intermediate with the muscle rounds. There's the loading sets, the muscle rounds, and the pump sets. So you're you're covering you know the uh, the rep spectrum, and what happens then, especially let's say someone who hasn't been doing like a lot of like high rep types of metabolically stressful stuff, two things happens when when they go into that zone and they haven't previously. One, they're going to get a, a physiological muscular endurance effect. Hmm. The research shows this clearly. You train people with lighter loads, they get better with training with lighter loads. Muscular endurance improves. Training with heavier loads, they get you know greater strength gains from that. That that happens like every single time, pretty much. And what that means then is that you're going to have, from what I what I have noticed, what I seem to see is that you do get an improvement in muscle endurance that can carry over to some degree. It's not something that you see robustly in the acute studies, but now you're used to like doing 20 rep sets, and people who have done DC training have probably noticed. This. You do that 20 rep set and you're like looking for that extra 21st, 22nd rep. You develop some muscle endurance. They're just thinking of the muscle now that makes those what would have been eight rep sets into nine rep sets. Hmm. 
you get a little bit more. So you get a little more loading out of the loading sets, I think. And so that's one effect. The second one is psychologically. It's so friggin' hard to push deep into those high rep sets mm-hmm. that the pain and the effort and those sorts of things makes to some degree the heavier loading where it's a much shorter, shorter set, something that's more easy to endure. You only got to like really be in that deep, like, Oh shit, here we go spot for five or 10 seconds, as opposed to 15 seconds, maybe at the end of a high rep set. Yeah. So physiological and psychological and the things the other way around, if you get used to training with the big heavy weights, then the lighter weights feel lighter. Hmm. So there's something going on there psychologically, I think as well in the other way. So doing both heavier and lighter loading, they complement one another physiologically and psychologically in a way that, that I think allows you to train harder and produce a better molecularly based effect in doing both kinds. So like literally you get a synergism that's going, going on psychologically, physiologically in terms of adaptation at a molecular basis and a metabolic basis acutely and I like and that long term. Yeah, it's I pretty, like that because when you say you have to figure it out for yourself and there's trial and error, I feel like if you were to do both, you're you're going to get something, you know, right. you're, you're going to get something out of it. Yeah. And the thing that I, I kind of tell people in the in the like one of the bottom line messages, I think that makes sense is that if you look at a muscle group that's not growing it's not making progress. Yeah. Um, sometimes people will see like if some people if people are strong, they you like to do what you're good at, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you Absolutely. Like to lift with the heavier loads, and if you're not growing doing that, then you may have to try to do something that it produces a novel stimulus for you because you haven't been doing it, or doing something you're not that good at. Hmm. So this is why going back to this idea that higher type one fiber percentage based muscles would grow better from higher reps. Like that almost seems backwards to me. It always sort of did from the beginning. It's like those muscles are already set up to be better if they're if they're high in type ones and they're high endurance. They're already set up to handle the stress of an endurance oriented uh, physiological mm-hmm. challenge. So you're not really challenging them if you ask them to do something they're already good at. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you know, like if you have someone who's good at math. And you give them a, a tough math question. Is that a challenge to them? No. Like they're already good at math. Yeah. If you want to get them to grow intellectually or what have you, or in this case, physiologically to grow in terms of muscle hypertrophy or, or hyperplasia and hypertrophy, then you present a challenge that the muscle is not well equipped to handle. Hmm. So you force an adaptation. Yeah. So it makes sense, at least as uh, like one strategy to consider is if you have a muscle that is not endurance oriented like it just craps out mm-hmm. and it's not growing from what you're doing then force it to do what it's not good at hmm. and it could be the other way around if you have a weak if you have a weak muscle that or muscles that aren't you're not very strong at the lifts that you use to, to, to stimulate those then get stronger making sure that they are the muscle that's being used mind muscle connection pick the right exercise that kind of stuff hmm. force the overload if you're not strong and the tension then being our sort of main stimulus is the thing that should drive the growth. But if the endurance is terrible too, and it's not growing and getting stronger hasn't worked, then push the endurance. That's actually a challenge that hopefully would bring on new growth. Yeah. Maybe through these mechanisms we talked about, because you haven't been tapping into those. You just, 
you don't do the things you're not good at, you know, so you, you stop those reps, those shits short because you just suck at endurance stuff. It's not fun. You suck at it. Well, that's what you need to do, you know, find the hard stuff, so to speak. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a that's a good message. 